Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. It's especially a joy to be with you on a baptism Sunday when we'll welcome four new people into the glorious kingdom of God that we call our home. Around the church here, for the staff, for the clergy, baptisms are really a breath of fresh air, and I hope that they are for you too. Um, Many of us have entered this call to ministry, or at least I have, with a certain amount of naivety, where uh, we come into it thinking, this is going to be incredible. I'm going to worship God professionally. I'm going to hang out at coffee shops. I'm going to get paid to read the Bible. God's my boss. Uh, It really seems like a great gig, and uh, what you discover is that about 20 minutes in, everything goes sideways, and you come to the stark and often painful realization that this ministry thing isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. The work is much more difficult than you expected. The people that you're ministering to are hurting much more than you ever realized. And probably most importantly, you are much less impressive and much more sinful than you had ever hoped to imagine. And I think this is true even if you're not a professional Christian, so you all are not off the hook. (laughs) If you're sitting in this room and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are also working in ministry and you face these same realities. Perhaps you're longing for that family member to come to know Jesus and you just are hitting a wall. Or you've given in to that same temptation again, even though you said last time was the last time. Or you're walking with friends who are suffering or through brokenness or through hardship and you're tired. The work is tiring, it's exhausting, and it most likely isn't exactly what you expected from this Christian life when you started following Jesus. And I think that if you're honest, and if I'm honest, there's times when we wonder why we do it or if it's worth the effort. And that's why days like today are so important. You see, baptisms are living proof that God is at work in our world. He's in our midst. He's making dirty things clean and he's making broken things new. In a few moments right here, you're going to have this incredible opportunity to see the gap between heaven and earth grow incredibly thin. Light is going to shine, your eyes will come into focus, and the dark mirror through which we now see will reflect, for just a moment, the clear and full glory of the kingdom of God in our midst. And this morning, I want you to be captivated by that kingdom. Whether you've been a Christian your entire life, or if you're going to be baptized in the next 15 minutes, or if this is the first time that you have ever been in a church, my prayer is that this morning you would taste the kingdom and see that the Lord is good. So we're going to spend our time this morning in Hebrews. If you want to turn your Bible there, we'll be in chapter 12 and chapter 13. And once you get there, I'll pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for this gift of baptism, for this moment when your kingdom breaks into our world. Thank you that you are always at work even when we cannot see it. I pray that we would be captivated again or captivated anew by your kingdom. Speak through me and give us all ears to hear. Amen. So if you are one of those real hardcore, legit Anglicans, you know that the reading this morning is actually the last half of the New Testament, the uh, chapter 13 of Hebrews. But I learned that uh, there's a fun loophole built in on a baptism Sunday, and it becomes preacher's choice. So I got to choose whatever I wanted to preach on this morning. 
Uh, and as you can see, I didn't have the gumption to really go off script, so I just backed us up a little bit uh, into Hebrews 12. I'm not trying to press my luck in any way, but we will get to Hebrews 13 because I am not trying to take any chances. So we'll get there eventually. But first, we'll sit in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, and in verses 18 through 29, the author of Hebrews gives us this amazing illustration, and it's a real picture of what I was talking about earlier, this idea of unmet expectations when things don't go the way that you think they're going to go. And to do this, he contrasts two mountains. On one hand, we have this unnamed mountain, and on the other, we have Mount Zion. And the scene that the author is calling us back to at the beginning is the scene in Exodus 19. This is where Moses goes up the mountain and God meets him in fire. He gives him the Ten Commandments. This is what we're talking about in Hebrews 18 through 21. Now, the text doesn't say so, but I want to read both. I'm going to read from Hebrews, and then I'm going to read from the story in Exodus, and I want you to compare the two so we can be on the same page with what we're talking about. So listen closely for these parallels. This is from our reading this morning in Hebrews 12, uh, verses 18 through 21. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. So that's Hebrews. Jump back in your Bible to Exodus 19 and start in verse 12. It says, put limits for the people around the mountain. Tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Then if you jump ahead a few verses into 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. So I think it's clear that we're talking about the same mountain. This is Mount Sinai, and this is important because this is a very a special moment in the life of the people of Israel, and the author of Hebrews is making a very particular point. And context is key. The events of Exodus in chapter 19 that the author is describing, you have to understand them in the context of God's covenant with Israel. And that's a really big topic, and 20 minutes on Sunday is not enough time to cover it, but one verse here is really important. And it's Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. In this verse, God is speaking. He's on the mountain. He tells Israel that the whole earth is his, but that Israel will be his holy nation. This is where he tells them that he's going to set them apart, that they are his chosen people. Then the story progresses and God gives them the law, and that law serves as the boundary markers to differentiate Israel from the peoples around them. The law outlines how Israel is going to live as God's people to keep them from falling into sin and to demonstrate uh, a new way of life under the lordship of God to other nations. And on the one hand, it comes with these wonderful blessings for obeying the law, and on the other, it comes with severe curses for disobeying the law. And so as we're watching this display of God, the smoke and the thunder and the lightning, um, you can imagine the, the fear Israel, I think, had to feel considering their own sinfulness and wondering how they were ever going to hold up their end of the covenant. If you read in Exodus 19, they're actually uh, quite bullish about it. They're very confident that they're going to do this and they're going to follow the covenant. But if you know anything about ancient Israel, you know that it goes sideways pretty quickly. But I want you to picture this entire scene from Israel's vantage point. 
Okay, the Passover has happened. God has come in. He has plucked Israel out of Egypt and rescued them. They've been singing God's praises. The Lord has given them manna and quail in the desert. He's brought water out of the rock. They've defeated the Amalekites. And so on the whole, I think things are going really well for Israel at this point. Then we get to chapter 19. This is exciting. This is part of a climax. Moses goes up the mountain. God is coming down. He's going to speak with them. He's going to make them his people. This is great, right? Israel is about to worship God professionally. God is going to be their boss in a manner of speaking. And to this point, God's done some amazing things, and so they're probably thinking, this is a great gig. What's going to go wrong? Well, the answer, it turns out, is earthquakes, and it's fire, and don't get too close because then the answer is death, and that's not even the punishments for breaking the covenant. That's just the preamble. This is just what happens if you get too close. The actual punishments of the covenant are severe, and they get worse and worse the more that you break the covenant. So I'd imagine that this isn't exactly what Israel thought that they were getting into. My guess is they were expecting victory and glory and power and all the things that you would think come with being set apart as God's chosen people. And instead, they encountered darkness and gloom and storm and fear. And more than that, they get left at a distance. They can't even approach God for fear of death. And I think this is often the experience of us in our Christian lives. This is what I was describing at the beginning. We entered into this Christian life expecting one thing, but often we encounter something completely different. And that most certainly would remain the case for us. We would most certainly remain in Israel's predicament. But the author of Hebrews shows us another mountain. By the grace of God, we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, where our expectations will not go unmet, but will be exceeded beyond our wildest dreams. Mount Zion crops up a few times in the scriptures, and generally, when we're talking about Mount Zion, we're talking about the royal line of David. If you flip into the Gospel of Matthew, the first thing you read is Jesus' genealogy, and you see that he comes from David's line. So when we're talking about Mount Zion, we're talking about the city of the king. This is where Jesus rules. It's the eternal city. It's the kingdom of God come to earth. And this mountain that we've come to, Mount Zion is the mountain of life. It's where thousands of angels sing and praise and the saints that have come before us fall down at the throne of God. And at this mountain, we come to God himself. Notice the difference between Sinai. Don't get too close because you will die. But now at Mount Zion, we come to God himself. We're no longer held at bay by death, but we're invited into this joyful assembly with God. We're near to him and we're alive. This is a glorious picture of the Christian life especially so compared to Mount Sinai, but I think it begs a very important question. And the question is, what has changed? Right? What's different between these two mountains? Why does Mount Zion operate in a different manner than Mount Sinai? God certainly hasn't changed. His power is the same. His judgment's the same, and his mercy is the same. And this is important. Don't make the mistake of thinking that we're dealing with two different gods, the nasty, mean Old Testament God and the peaceful, nice New Testament God. I think that's too easy to do. It's a cop-out. If you remember, God actually rescues Israel out of Egypt long before he says anything about a law. And then when he gives the law, he builds in the sacrificial system so that Israel can atone for their sins. Mercy is always God's business, so God hasn't changed. And we haven't changed. You and I are still broken. We're helpless, fearful people marred by our sin and dead in our transgressions, just like the people of Israel. So if God hasn't changed, and we haven't changed, 
What's changed? What's changed is our standing before God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we come to this mountain, to Mount Zion, we come to, as we see in verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In his life, Jesus fulfilled perfectly the covenant that Israel was not able to fulfill. If you back up in Hebrews to chapter 8, Paul writes, or sorry, excuse me, the author of Hebrews writes this, not Paul. He says, but in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator and is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And then in this chapter, he goes on to quote Jeremiah 31. This is where God institutes his new covenant, where God promises to write his law in their hearts and mind, to be with them, to be their God, to forgive their wickedness and remember their sins. I should be familiar from the Old Testament reading in Ezekiel this morning. In his death, Jesus becomes the sacrifice once for all on the cross that fulfills this new covenant. He takes our place, he takes on our sin, and he suffers the punishment we deserve, washing us clean in his shed blood, blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a fascinating little phrase. It comes from Genesis chapter 4. If you know the story, Cain and Abel are brothers, and Cain kills Abel. And after Cain kills him, God curses Cain, and he says, Listen, Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood was sown in jealousy and anger and hatred. So Abel's blood cries out for judgment and for retribution. But it is a shadow of what is to come. Jesus' blood was sown in love and mercy, and it cries out for justification and forgiveness. And finally, in his resurrection, Jesus defeats death once and for all. He firmly establishes the kingdom of God on earth. He reigns as Lord over all things, and he grants us the freedom to boldly approach the throne of God in full assurance of mercy and forgiveness, having made us clean with his blood. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are baptized into. In this water, we are buried with Christ in his death, and we share in his resurrection. We are welcome to Mount Zion. We are planted firmly in God's kingdom that will never pass away. And this is glorious news. The author reminds us in verse 26 and 27 that God has shaken the earth before, and he's going to shake it again, and not only the earth, but the heavens also. And this is a warning, and we would do well to hear it. See, God has spoken clearly in Jesus, and we ignore him at our own peril. He's going to come again to judge the kingdoms of this earth, to judge the living and the dead, as we say in our creed. And this judgment will be definitive. It will be the end. The author tells us that those things which can be shaken will be removed so that what cannot be shaken will remain. God will destroy all that is corrupt and defiled in this world to make room for those things that cannot be destroyed, for the new heavens and the new earth, for his kingdom, for Mount Zion, so they may be established in full. Fear is going to be shaken. Tears will be shaken. Pain will be shaken. Sickness will be shaken. Neglect will be shaken. Violence will be shaken. Exploitation will be shaken. Broken relationships will be shaken. Revenge will be shaken. Sin will be shaken. And death itself will be shaken, but the kingdom of God will not be moved. And if you confess Jesus as Lord, you have received this kingdom, and neither will you be moved. So do not put your hope in this world. 
Don't submit yourself to something lesser. Don't go to Mount Sinai where there's fire and fear and earthquakes. Don't be enraptured by fleeting things that defile you and defile others and defile creation. Those things will be shaken and destroyed. Rather, be captivated by the kingdom of God. Come to Mount Zion. So I've got a few minutes left, and I want to close with an exhortation to three groups of people. And the first is those four that are going to be baptized in their parents. Praise God that you have been baptized into this kingdom. Your task now is to grow in the knowledge, faith, and love of Jesus Christ, to learn the meaning of your baptismal vows, to learn the creeds, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and to come to your own faith in Jesus. To those of you in the room who have been baptized, who are following Jesus, your task is twofold. The first is to walk alongside those that are going to be baptized. In a minute, um, you're going to reaffirm your baptismal vows. You're going to make a promise to walk with these newly baptized in their Christian life. That is a very serious promise. Take it seriously. Our passage today in Hebrews is preceded in chapter 11 by something called the Faith Hall of Fame. This is where we go through all of the heroes of the faith from Israel to now. It's this litany of those who've come before us, our great cloud of witnesses, because our faith is a corporate faith, and it stretches back across space and time. Because of that, you have been built up by the saints that have come before you more than you could ever know. Therefore, build up these newly baptized. And second, bring others into this kingdom that you call home. God desires not the death of sinners, but that all people might come to be saved. And his plan for that is this church. It's his people. Remember your commission in Matthew to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the way you do that is by worshiping God acceptably with reverence and awe. This is what we read in Hebrews 12, verse 28. Worship is not just a Sunday morning thing. It is a way of life. All that you say and do should proclaim the glory of God and his kingdom. And in Hebrews 13, we get a look of what this is going to look like, what it looks like to live in the kingdom. told you I was coming back. Hebrews 13 says, Keep loving one another as brothers and sisters. Show hospitality to strangers. Remember those in prison, those who are mistreated. Honor marriages. Refrain from sexual sin. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. Because of that, say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders, and remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These are the ethics of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. It is a beautiful and a captivating life. So if you've been baptized, if you're following Jesus, live that life well. Proclaim it always that those who don't know Jesus who are not members of this kingdom might see you and say, that is what I need. I need to be a part of that. And finally, to those who don't know Jesus, come with us to Mount Zion. Place your faith in Jesus. Confess that he is Lord and enter into this unshakable kingdom. It is a kingdom of great joy. It's a kingdom where you've been forgiven of your sins, you've been made clean, and you dwell with God and with one another in peace and reconciliation. It's a kingdom that will not be moved. So I pray that you would witness the goodness of this kingdom and the people around you who inhabit it. And if you have questions or if you want to know more, talk to me, talk to our clergy, talk to the church staff, or better yet, talk to the people around you that know the hand motions. They are part of this kingdom. They live in this kingdom and they long to share it with you.
they have been called to share it with you. Come with us to Mount Zion. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.